Hey there, it's Ben. I'm wanting to thank everyone for all the feedback we're getting on Twitter and Facebook. And I'm wanting to give a shout out to this amazing example of a basement gaming space in the Tales Facebook group. It was a sight to behold and I suggest heading on over. And as a part of our Patreon support surge, I'm wanting to give a huge shout out to Heather Trevor for pledging to the shows. You can be like them at patreon.com slash the Hydean way if you want to and are able to. Thank you and now on to the show. I grimace as I step out of the back room in the hold. I'm surprised to say this as you are to hear it, but I just can't crack this guy. I know he knows who has our turbo laser coils, but I have no idea how to get it out of him. I know just what to do with this guy. I lift up a large hydro spanner and thump it against my palm. I'll make sure that this criffing gambler knows just what they mean to us. I step inside and close the door. This is going to be an advantageous tale from the Hydean Way. We're your host, Ben Yendel. And David Pickering. Well, the inspiration, at least for this week's episode, comes from me reading the beta book that FFG put out, the, the PDF they put out on their website for the Legend of the Five Rings RPG system that they're doing, which, as far as I know, the link is still up on their website. You can download it, try it out. It's fun. Samurai Fantasy Feudal Japan. Uh, but it uses a similar, but not quite the same, narrative dice system to Star Wars. Except, instead of using... They still have successes, they still have stuff like that, but they don't have advantage threat in the same way. They have opportunities, and I think it's called strife. So we wanted to talk about ways of using advantages and threats creatively, and it occurred to me that you could even just lift a lot of what the L5R system is doing. Because to them, uh, threat isn't just sort of something bad that can happen in the scene. To them, the, the analog to threat is strife. And since samurai are expected to be very, you know, collected and stoic and sort of uphold social order, instead of threat, they accrue strife, which is basically their emotions are being upset in some way, whether they're being made angry or they're fearful or something good, like they're, they're getting to the point where they're really happy and they can't help but laugh out loud or something. You know, anything that might cause them to break sort of social decorum. And I just thought, well, that is an interesting way to apply, you know, especially if you had like a political situation. I could easily see something like that working for threat in Star Wars. And so I said to Ben, why don't we talk about advantage and threat? And then he had some ideas based on what he's been reading about the Genesis system. So we just have all sorts of thoughts tonight. <laughs> like, the Genesis system is based on the Edge of the Empire system. It, okay, we'll call it that for tonight. Like, the <laughs> FFG Star Wars system is sort of the basis of Genesis. The Genesis of Genesis? Yeah, someone was going there. And I'm probably, like, months late to that joke. Sorry. <laughs> But it has advantage, it has triumphs, it has threats, it has despairs. Even says so on their pages, which will be linked. But the thing that was interesting to me was, it has social encounters on here. And me as a very crunchy GM, or at least I take into account a lot of the crunch when being as frivolous as I can be. And what I mean by that is, I actually take a look at that spending triumph and advantage and threat and despair in combat checks and try and apply it against everything. When other tables have come out, I've been trying to integrate them. Mm -hmm. A great one is in Endless Vigil, where it's a table, again, everything but success failure tables, of 
trying to do like knowledge underworld and streetwise on a planet. And these are things that you can come up with in the book that should just be or that when we're recording is just getting off the boat. Uh, Savage Spirits for its reprint. It has in it for survival checks, which roll three advantage on a successful check or even on a non-successful check. You find a place to hide out for a day. You find a secure camping spot, mm-hmm. which in the wilderness, that's huge. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because, you know, I, I don't know if it's super common for a lot of people in, I guess, the the <laughs> the subculture that likes to play RPGs to really know what it's like to spend a lot of time outside at night with no shelter. I'm sure there are people who've done it, because <laughs> I know people who've done it, but I don't think it's as common amongst our, our group of people as amongst other subcultures. But it's terrible. It's awful, you know, to be outside with no shelter. Bugs cold weather, exposed to the elements. There's a lot of work to it. Yeah, even just being able to sleep because the ground is uneven and hard. There are some uh, automatic, you know, setback dice on your next day's checks. <laughs> uh, yes. It might even be an easy resilience check, but yeah, doing a resilience check at the beginning of the next day to see what's applied. Mm-hmm. One of the things I truly, absolutely think is the best thing of the dice system for Star Wars, and now Genesis, is the two axes of success. You have the success, failure, and the advantage threat. And when you allow your story to incorporate the things that come up from the advantage, like, it's something that, did they succeed? Didn't they? Who knows? But this is something connected to it, but not the intended result. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is just screaming amazing. That's the brilliant part of the entire system to me. I mean, there's a lot of brilliant parts, but that's probably one of the the best things that I've ever taken away from that system is the dual axis that you can succeed, but have something horrible go wrong, or you can fail, but something, an opportunity presents itself. There are other ones like Powered by the Apocalypse with masks and that sort of stuff where it's degrees of success. And the default is succeed with a cost, a small cost. Mm-hmm. That's well and cool. And for Powered by the Apocalypse, it works great. I love having the gradient. I just like having it be incredibly random, which allows for great improving and allows for your story to just take those hard turns that no one could think of when you're coming up with it, where you come up with new NPCs that you'd never think of the reason why they would be there, let alone anything else. Honestly, I think that when you get those sorts of results on the dice, that's where, because it, you know, it says in the rulebook, and it says specifically in the rulebook, when it's advantage, at the very least, the player is supposed to be the one coming up with what's going on. Yeah. Subject to GM approval. But that's where you get the really interesting additions to the campaign, additions to the storyline that you as a GM weren't planning. Yeah. Because, you know, it really, it says subject to GM approval, but it's not really like the GM's supposed to be... <laughs> curating the best ideas or anything. He's just there to make sure the guy doesn't say, oh, well, I rolled six advantage and I discover that this particular stormtrooper, he was carrying around a rocket launcher on his back that he wasn't using, but we can take now. <laughs> you know, that might be appropriate in some circumstances, but, you know, there's always that one player that just wants a rocket launcher. Or a heavy blaster rifle, because, well, that is kind of an option with stormtroopers. Yeah. <laughs> or from the other side, oh, yes, you took out all these stormtroopers. And, oh, you've got these three threat. Well, you better run, because the pin apparently has been pulled from one of the frag grenades. 
That's probably <laughs> just going to chain. Can you tell I have people who like to loot or had? <laughs> I generally, you know, I, t- I tell my players, if they have a really powerful gun, they're using it. You know, if you see a stormtrooper who's using a blaster <laughs> carbine, don't expect to find a repeating, you know, mini gun, <laughs> like, you know, a rotisserie, not a rotisserie blaster rifle, but a rotating blaster rifle. Oh, come on, that would be cool. He's not going to have that stuffed into his back pocket. He'll be using it. <laughs> exactly. And as a GM, that's one thing that you really ought to take into account with your NPCs. I also like to, this is just a side note, I like to give advantage and setback to my players when they are using long weapons or short weapons in enclosed spaces. If you're herring around a, a heavy blaster rifle in the corridor of a spaceship, not like the Death Star where they've got like the really long corridors, but like... You know, your average, like if you've ever been on an actual naval vessel, like those are very short, small, cramped hallways because they're not building them to drive cars through, unlike the Death Star. No, they're usually building them to make sure people can't quickly and easily get through them with a bunch of guns. Exactly. So if you're using a heavy blaster rifle in an cramped area, I'm going to give you setback dice. Whereas if you switch to a blaster carbine or you're using a handgun or a pistol, then I'm giving you boost dice on those rolls because you're using a weapon that's easily maneuverable in that space. That totally makes sense. For me, I'm a little bit more of a mean GM. (laughs) Just on account of, if the player can come up with a reason to have a boost dice, like, I will take seven different reasons for seven different boost dice. But it has to be the players coming up with it. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of idea as using advantage. To me, trying to add positive dice to my pool is my job. As the GM or as a PC who's on the receiving end of an NPC's role, I always figured that threat is supposed to be given by the opposition and the boost is supposed to be given by my side. That makes sense. It doesn't matter if I'm the players or whether I'm the GM. And I know you can hear it on Heroes, where you have different players trying to say, oh, well, and for this, I'm trying to focus someone's attention on something, so this other person's social role is so much easier, like getting a boost for it. Yeah, I think this is, again, partly cynical. But if you require the players to be the ones pointing out when they should be getting boost dice, that requires the players to be paying attention to what you're saying, because they have to jump on top of it. It can't just be, oh, well, I look at YouTube until my turn, or oh, what's this guy doing on Facebook? Oh, it's my turn? Okay. It's like, oh, okay, well, I need to know what's going on so I can say to the GM, hey, I should be getting a boost dice because I'm on elevated ground. Or, you know, this guy is clearly drunk. I should be getting a boost dice on my attempt to get information out of him. Exactly. And that if you want to use a cynical point of view on this, absolutely. Like, to me, that is exactly why I started doing this. On previous episodes and privately, I will just keep on going back to this because it eats at me. My TPK with Toronto... I had a player who wasn't really paying attention at the table. Kind of Mm -hmm. my fault, kind of his, but my table, my fault in so many ways. But when I sat them down, when we started up a new campaign afterwards, I told them that all boost dice come from you. All positive stuff come from you guys for your group. Anything bad comes from me. Now, if you guys are wanting to be nice to me and we're wanting to be equitable or we think it's great for the scene... Oh, yeah, like, I'll throw in, yeah, my NPC's pretty drunk, so I'm going to give you a boost die. Mm -hmm. But as a semi-cynical GM, I am more likely to do that for a player that I'm already feeling is in the game. I don't necessarily want to go volunteering boost dice to a player who isn't paying attention. If you really want to get into this, this is training your players. In a nice way. This is the positive reinforcement side. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, we're not bringing out the sticks. No, you aren't paying attention at the table, so you get an automatic upgrade on whatever you're doing. People are just going to start avoiding your table if you're doing that. Yeah. But if you start rewarding people who are engaged, it's going to allow people to become more engaged. Yes, you are going to get the people who are sitting quietly at the side of the table paying great attention, but they're just not wanting to engage deeply, and that's sort of their personality. Mm -hmm. That is totally okay. Yeah, there's a difference between not paying attention and just not talking constantly. There's always going to be people at the table who are more likely to talk, and then there's also a lot of people who are less likely to talk. Yeah, I mean, it's just personalities. But yeah, advantage and threat, because we, we talk about giving out boost dice, we talk about giving out setback dice, but what happens when they roll them and they come up with things that are really interesting? I tend to shy away from showing people the tables, and I know we've talked about this before, just because I feel like, especially if you don't necessarily feel comfortable with the system yet, you just do one of the results from the table. Or worse, every time it's combat, you're just looking to build up to a critical hit. Yeah. And that's the that's the thing I always do with, with this system, specifically, because it's actually, you know, you can do it with this system. I just say, think of it from a narrative perspective. Or I just say, tell me what you want to happen. Not mechanically. Don't tell me anything about dice or hit points or any of those. Those don't really exist. Those are mechanics that we use to simulate what's happening. <laughs> tell me what's going on. You know, do you want the ship to catch on fire? Do you want to catch this guy before he hits the ground? Like, what are you doing? That's a cool way of doing it. And that tends to get a lot better response out of people. Because then, if you come from D&D, you're trained to think, like, oh, I need to know the mechanics, because that's how you win D&D, quote-unquote. You know, you remember, oh, this is when I can use Whirlwind Attack, or this becomes a really good combo with what the mage just did, or the wizard just did. With D&D, the only way that you really get to do your truly, absolutely cool stuff is if you remember your mechanics. Even if you're... Mm -hmm. Say the Bear Barbarian, which is the class I absolutely love. <laughs> if you don't remember to rage, and you don't remember that you are immune to virtually everything except for Psychic, you don't really get the fullness of your character. With my group, because, you know, obviously I'm playing Pathfinder right now. We're working through a long campaign, and we'll do something else when we're done. I have actually got, I'm super excited, a couple, about a month from now, we're going to do a night for um, the L5R beta. We're just going to run the adventure Ooh, from cool. the back of that book. But it'll be fun. So I haven't gotten to play the narrative systems as much as I would have liked, which is partly why I'm so excited about L5R. But running Pathfinder while talking, you know, every two weeks or so about the narrative dice system <laughs> of Star Wars has been really great because it keeps giving me ideas for what I can do to improve the quality of our Pathfinder game. Because while Pathfinder is fun, it is, like any RPG, far from perfect. So, we, you know, we steal the initiative slot order like everybody does from Star Wars. As well you should. I've just started saying the same thing that I say when we play Star Wars, or when we play anything that has narrative dice, or even any element that you could make like narrative dice, like Fate. I just say, forget the mechanics. And there are people that hate that, and there are people that love it, but I just say, forget the mechanics, because they're not going to make a good story. Nobody tells a story about the time that you went from 8 HP to 12 HP, because you remembered that there was a potion hidden in the cabinet next door. You do remember the story about that time when you got knocked through a wall, and then, because you got knocked through the wall, you notice the red potion glinting in the rubble of the cabinet you fell through. That's more interesting. So just tell me, you know, I, I want to introduce a health potion into the scene. Flip a force point, you know, something like that. You can do that. I generally allow people, if they have triggered advantages or threats, to combine that with destiny points. Because why not, you know? I say, they'll say, I want to do something that would normally require a destiny point, but I want to do it and my advantage. I say, fine, spend me a light side point, and we'll add it to your advantage. And sometimes when people say, I want to do this with my advantage, 
I'll say, okay. And then I flip a dark side point and say, well, we're going to make it a little bit more interesting. Not always, but I don't want to rob them of their advantage. But I, it's a game of yes and. It's like, yeah, sure, you find the health potion, but there is also, flip a dark side point, a familiar in the cabinet who's the cobra. <laughs> he was just slithering in the drawers and then you found him. So there's a new element in the scene from both perspectives. Using advantage and threat to int- introduce new things, it's a really powerful thing that so few people seem to use. Okay, I know this is on the combat ones. I'm pretty sure that this is on the other ones, like the wayfinding, the survival ones, the astrogation ones. I don't remember. There might need to be a better astrogation one, which, eh, who knows, I might come up with <laughs> when I'm not planning out heroes. Oh, yeah. But I'm taking a look at spending advantage and uh, triumph in Genesis for social encounters. And I've heard previously social combat. Well, combat's had its own table and social stuff hasn't so there's no real thing except i'm taking a look at the spend one advantage or triumph and seriously if anyone uses a triumph to replace an advantage i'm always shocked (laughs) i typically say you can use part of your triumph for that now give me something else because you wrote a really good result don't waste it spending strain off of the bad guy uh exactly it's like and i'm wanting to recover one strain what (laughs) But I'm taking a look at the Genesis one, and there's three. And tell me if you've heard these three before. Recover one strain. Mm-hmm. Add a boost die to the next allied active character's check. Yep. Those two are straight from the combat. Yeah. And here's the thing that I have had people use, kinda. This is the point where a lot of people start getting the concept of, I can improvise too. Notice a single important point in the ongoing encounter, such as an overly courteous waiter or some drapes your character can stand behind to avoid being recognized. Ooh, I like that. That's an advantage. But if you take a look at the combat one, it's almost exactly the same. Huh. Notice a single important point in the ongoing conflict, such as the location of a blast door's control panel or a weak point on an attack speeder to go from the Edge of the Empire GM screen. It's the same concept. You notice something, and you can inject your own thing. Encouraging that is one of a GM's and one of an improvisational GM's best tricks. Because as soon as you get your players to start understanding this, and that you're not going to beat them down for it, mm-hmm. your prep time got cut in half. I will say, just from what I've listened to, part of the reason, and definitely not all the reasons, because those guys are amazing, but one of the biggest things that Dice for Brains does really well to make their stories and their, their games so interesting is that <laughs> the players are improvising constantly. Yeah. And it is just, okay, that's cool. We've got that. You've got it. You, you know what? You have an uncle outside of town <laughs> that has a barn that has speeder bikes in it. Sure, we'll go with that. And and that becomes a key plot point. And it just, it's woven in. You can definitely tell it requires Ross to do a lot of thinking on the go, because maybe he's the GM if you're not listening to Dice for Brains. And uh, he does some, obviously, some prep work to incorporate those things between sessions. But the end result is really good, you know. And again, it's got to be within reason because, like I said, there's always going to be the guy that just wants somebody to have a rocket launcher that they're not using <laughs> that he can take. I totally give out a missile tube. On the other hand, it's empty or like one of those flechette launchers. It, it totally has three charges left. Your friend who's in desperate need of medical attention's knowing where the other one went. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really great. I, one of the things that I like to do, and this is just my preference, but generally I find that some of the weapons on the chart are hard things to give the players and let them have forever because it just makes it much harder to plan encounters for. So, you know, if a player has a disruptor rifle, 
they start to be able to just <laughs> waste things. And then combat isn't fun anymore because it's just that guy killing everything, right? But if you give the guy a disruptor rifle that's damaged but has enough in it for like six or seven shots, then suddenly it becomes like a magic item uh, yes. in Pathfinder or D&D, like a wand with charges or something. It's a special thing you whip out when you really need it. You know, the missile tube? It's only got six rockets, and it's not a standard missile tube. It's a special missile tube mm-hmm. built by a company that went out of business. So you can find more rockets for it, but it's very hard to find them. And I usually tweak it and say, like, oh, well, it does an extra point of damage, because it's a really nice rocket launcher. Nice. You can't buy the ammo in most places where you buy ammo. I mean, it's kind of weird to think of a you walk in off the street and be like, I'd like seven RPGs. You know, I need four armor-piercing rockets, and I need one that blows up into lots of little pieces when I fire it. Yeah, in an Edge game, that would be a little weird. Even Force <laughs> and Destiny, that would be a little on the weird side. Age of Rebellion. I can almost see that being sort of the standard thing of Age. It's like, well, we don't have any of that, but yeah, sure. I'd totally give it to you if we had a single one of those. <laughs> in Edge and Force, it's like, why do you want that? In Age of Rebellion, it's like, yeah, sure, you could have it as soon as you get it for me. We don't have any here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're fresh out. Threat and advantage are the ways of introducing the not obvious things into a scenario. Yeah, the more I look at these social encounters things from mm-hmm. Genesis, the more I'm just adoring it. Yeah, that's it's probably going to be incorporated into the Tales library. <laughs> I've seen all of four charts from it. Right. I know nothing. Spend three advantage to learn a desire or fear of the targeted character. Successfully conceal your true goal in the encounter. Or learn the true goal of your target, if your target has one. And that's another good point, but... Yeah, not everybody has an ulterior motive. Exactly, you're negotiating. The true goal of your opponent is to make sure that they get as much money for this as possible, or they lose as little money as possible. That's their goal. Yeah. On the other hand, successfully concealing your true goal, which means going to the negotiation idea, if you are trying to buy something, you have an intended use for this. Even if it's my Kuzo Heavy who is desperately looking for a rotating blaster rifle, just because, well, they look cool, and seriously, a Kuzo who has one of those would be disturbing. (laughs) Just bouncing everywhere to medium range, unloading, bounce, unloading, bounce... Disturbing. Even with the one round of prepare. Even if you get that, it isn't just, oh, well, my character finds that this is part of their deep personal identity. Though, honestly, I think that's what it is for my Kuza. <laughs> Giant gun for the heavy kind of a thing. But being able to conceal that, it's like, we're just wanting to get this so that we can traffic it instead of, I'm wanting this to use it in this particular situation. Right. The idea of breaking down a social encounter into different layers what is the desire or fear of your npc like in some cases this is a great thing to have down for your npc to know how they're going to be coming at an at an, a negotiation your random shopkeep this probably isn't going to be a huge thing but that info chant that they're trying to charm some stuff out of or they're trying to negotiate something from the desire and the fear of that info chant is going to inform their character. Mm, absolutely. And that ties in really well to the what I was talking about with Legend of the Five Rings. Because for that system, opportun- the strife, specifically the strife, ties into the social encounters a lot. Because part of the game for social characters specifically is basically 
if you suffer too much stress, you suffer an outburst. And there are specific outbursts to each character. You can come up with a personal one. So like maybe your your character just shuts down entirely and stops talking, becomes just they they're too upset, they can't figure it out, they're just not talking. Or something like that. And then there's sort of general ones, like uh, you know, they say something inappropriate or they they blush or get angry or something. And you can use that to your advantage in social combat, essentially. It's not really social combat, <laughs> but like in a social situation, you can have a character who specializes in inflicting strife on the opponent and that causes the opponent to have to suffer outbursts which have lasting consequences to the scene and you get sort of like you know in game of thrones where you've got characters like Tyrion lannister who really just specializes in annoying people until they break their (laughs) decorum and it gives them a social disadvantage because suddenly they've said something that really isn't proper and they're on the back foot and that's a big part of that. And you can totally do that in Star Wars. Why not? Inflict strain on your opponent and cause them to flip out. Oh, I like that idea. You see it in the movies. Have it happen to the players. You know, tell the player, oh, you've suffered too strain as a result of what he said. And you could, I, I would almost even do it like a fate point, like a fate system. I'll say, I will give you guys back a light side point if you take this social outburst, if you do this thing, because you really want to, and it's going to cost you a force point not to do it. Because you've suffered all this strain from this one conflict. You know, he's really, really getting on your nerves. And you just want to stop smiling, stop being polite, and tell him where to stick it. (laughs) And if you do it, I'll give you a force point. But you're going to have to spend a destiny point not to do it because you're that upset about it. One of the things that I know Chris had talked of in his interview was using destiny points in ways that aren't just upgrading a check. There's a reason why, for me, I love using Destiny points to upgrade checks. To me, it's just the perfect thing for them. Mm-hmm. The forces against the players. But the other thing that can be done with them is introducing a story element on either side. There's even a few talents where it's introduce a story element as if you had spent one. Some of them are pretty deep down. I think there's one in like the Scientist Tree in Age of Rebellion. And then there's also Utility Belt, where it's you introduce a item, like an actual physical item, yeah. up within certain restrictions as if you had spent a destiny point. I pull out my bat shark repellent. Exactly. As we then go to bat labels. But we use a destiny point to do that sort of thing. The thing is, is that, yeah, we can also do advantages for this. If it's in trying to get... If you're trying to run through an environment and you're doing a chase on the ground and you're doing athletics checks or coordination checks to get through things, you roll and you get a boatload of advantage and the one success to get ahead. Well, what do you want to do with the advantage? Well, I find this giant pile of trash cans to knock down behind me so they have an upgrade or two on their check. Absolutely. Or, yeah, essentially giving them, hey, look, it is no difficult terrain behind me. Right. Yes, there are mechanics to this, but it's from the narrative that we get the mechanics. At least for me, that sort of seems to be the thing that, that you've been talking about most of tonight. Like, overarchingly, my golden rule at the table for any game is narrative over mechanics. Not to say that you're going to break the rules because the narrative is more interesting that way. Well, you could, in certain instances, make the case for that. But that if you want, like, especially just from like a GM perspective, if you want me to go along with something, tell me what's going on in the story, because I'm not playing a role-playing game to roll some dice and look at the numbers and go, ooh, that was a good number. Let's try again and get a higher (laughs) number. You know, I want a cool story. (laughs) Oh, okay. This is an entirely ad hoc role-playing 
game, like combat system, that is entirely based around opposed D10 rolls. Okay. No bonuses, no subtractions, nothing. And it's just a D10, zero to nine. Whatever you roll is what you roll. It's for a wrestling RPG. Okay. So the way that it's done is it's kind of like D&D in that I'm wanting to try and smack you. You can say it's something as blatant as that, or it's, okay, I'm trying to wrap my arm around your neck and put you in a sleeper hold, and with that, I'll do my roll. Then the opposing person, the person who's defending, gets to say, well, I've got my arms up trying to pull your forearm away so that I can pull out of this hold, and they do their roll. Right. And with these two, it's straight opposed, so higher number wins, then that's taken off of their total. First one to 10 points wins. Okay, that makes sense. But the way that this is done is with both attacker and defender are both doing descriptions to what they're attempting to do. The decision as to which side is successful is entirely left up to the dice. The lead into the next opposed roll is from the winner. So the winner of the last roll is now saying, okay, well, I was able to pull your arm away from this. I know, obviously, my hand's wrapped around your wrist, so I'm trying to pull it behind your back and trying to force you around the ring that way. <clears throat> now I do my attack roll and you do your defense as you're trying to do something else to get out of this. And it's chained actions. The actual use of it is from the narrative. The dice are there to say who wins their description. <clears throat> but the two descriptions have to be done with the idea that they both could win, but they also might not. Actually, what's really funny is um, that sounds a lot like sort of when I first got into role-playing games, I didn't have any systems. I didn't own any games. I had six-sided dice in my house, <laughs> and I didn't even really know what role-playing games were, but me and my friends would play these games where one person would narrate sort of the, like, to take the GM's role. I think we started with Lord of the Rings. This was when those movies were coming out, and we were, like, in middle school. And, you know, it'd be like, oh, do you want to be an elf, an orc, or, you know, you could, you could be an orc, but whatever. And here's what happens. And we would just tell the story. The player would say, oh, I'm going to do this. And they'd say, I'm going to go, you know, we did Star Wars eventually. That's where we spent most of our time playing it. But it'd be like, I want to go to this planet and do this thing. There were no real rules. The person, whoever was the narrator for that particular character's turn, would just be like, all right, that's going to be difficult. You know, you're trying to do this thing. You know, you, you want to wrestle your spaceship back under control. Roll me three dice and try and get at least this number. And we just make up the mechanics. They didn't matter. They were just sort of an ad hoc thing based on what you told us you were going to try and do and what we thought the situation entailed. So I really think that if you start with the narrative, if you start with the story of what's happening going into the dice roll, it really helps the GM and you to come up with what, how to define what happened when you get those advantages, those threats and successes and failures. Like What the dice show is much easier to define if you've already come up with a narrative that represents, you know, that the dice represent. Rather than saying, I'm arbitrarily rolling this because this is how you roll an attack roll. And in the end, it's going to be something along the lines of, I've just jumped into this hangar bay. There's this tactical droid standing before me, holding up one of my compatriots. I have my trusty vibro sword out, and I start charging at it. Mm -hmm. Trying to swing and slash at its midsection. From that, You've got an idea on what your success is, what your failure is, what your advantage is, and what your threat is. Yes. What a triumph and what a despair is going to be. From that description, despair, you chop into your cohort. Triumph, you probably chop this guy in half. Advantage, you might, like, chop this droid's arm off. There's just so much going on in your description from that. 
Mm-hmm. But you leave it off early enough that you have no idea what the actual answer is until the dice happen. If we give one piece of advice from the show, I would say narrate your attacks before you make them. Because I see so many people who just say, oh, well, it's my turn. Uh, I'm going to attack this guy. They roll the dice. and They're like, oh, well, what <laughs> happened then? Because I missed. And it's like, oh, OK. But if you say, all right, well, this guy is being really annoying to me because he keeps shooting at me. So I'm going to, even if it's just as simple as I'm going to take my blaster pistol and I'm going to aim it right at his chest and I'm going to pull the trigger three times. And that's my attack roll. You've given the GM so much more to work with when you roll two threat. And you're like, oh, well, both of the shots that didn't hit the guy, you succeeded. But both of the shots that didn't hit the guy blew up the controls for the door. So now you're going to have to figure out some other way to get through the door. I don't know. As a GM, I keep forgetting the doors thing. (laughs) Then I just sort of get transported back to the prisoner rescue scene in A New Hope, where the amount of control panels here is mildly disturbing. Like, I don't have that many light switches in my apartment. (laughs) It's like, okay, that door and that door and that door. They're all controlled by these weird triangular control panels. Yep. And you just shot three of them. It also, you know, just goes to say... Nobody ever really thought about the fact that the door controls could break on the Death Star, since when they're running away, the stormtroopers are literally trying to winch the door open. There's no better mechanic in place. They don't even have, like, a lever or something you can just pull out and hoist the door. They've got a string, and they're, like, pulling it open. You know, give me a tire, Jack. I'd get the door open enough to shoot them in the feet. It doesn't take them too long to get it open that much. Yeah, no, it's just... (laughs) I feel like the power going out to a door circuit should not require a winch. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a blast door. Which is there to stop immediate decompression. True. In the event that the reactor core is vented to space before everything else. I try and do this myself, and I know I don't always, but I try every single chance, is narrate going into a role, narrate coming out of the role. Yes. How you narrate coming out of the role is entirely dependent on the dice. If something really cool happens, but not the thing you're expecting, then that's what happens. It's like, I was searching for some stuff in the library, and apparently that book is checked out or something. But I was able to find these other three reference pieces of material for looking up this Tiberzon thing. (laughs) I'm able to find out a bit more about this really unseemly set of underworld characters. Really attempted to steal a Super Star Destroyer? Weirdos. That's where a lot of the fun is. For me as a GM, like, even on knowledge rolls, I've started to try and do something like that. Well, kind of like what I just said, is I'm trying to look for where the Zion Consortium has a location on this planet. Can't find it. I rolled, at the end of the day, it canceled out to one net failure and four advantage. So two of those advantages is these guys are established enough that I can probably find them if I try hard enough. The way that you can show that they're that established is, yeah, these guys are big enough to actually have attempted to steal a Super Star Destroyer. Yes. Then also it's like, oh, well, yeah, these guys in this sector are based off of this other planet. So it's not directly leading to exactly what I'm wanting of go to this cantina and there's going to be a guy there that if you say a certain passphrase, that's going to be what you're needing to do to get in touch with the Zion Consortium. That's if you succeeded and got a bunch of advantage. Well, you failed and got a bunch of advantage. You know what to say, you just don't know where to say it to get in. That's actually a really good way of doing it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know where their base is, but I hear if you mention cannolis, they'll let you in. Or you're given like a type of establishment, but the type of establishment that you're getting is not on this planet. Yeah. Failing then becomes lengthening 
the uh, quest chain instead of just being, oh, you go to the next one. No, well, you have to take this little side quest to find what you're needing. Right, exactly. One of the ones I love is someone noticing you. Even taking a look at the social encounters ones, it's you're giving away extra information that you aren't intending to give away. Whether it's in combat, it's like you're letting something slip, you're taking a setback, or they're getting a boost eye, something like that. You're unintentionally letting something slip. Yeah, because that's a big deal. In a game like this, frequently information can cause a lot more problems than... First off, do you have any topics that we haven't touched on that you want to touch on? Um, well, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of the ground for this. In fact, we went a little bit beyond scope, and I'm I'm really pleased with what we managed to talk about today. That's the reason why I always dare a co-host. Any co-host <laughs> that says, we can't talk for this long on it. Yeah, it's it's always surprising to me how much we manage to get out of topics. Do you have any final thoughts for our wonderful listeners who have gotten this far in our show on threat, advantage, despair, and triumph? Basically, I think my biggest piece of advice goes back to what we were just talking about there at the end. If you're a player, really do get in the habit of narrating your actions in combat or outside, and give details for the GM to hang things on. Because really, if you roll the dice before you've said what you're doing, you know, no matter what the result is, you're going to have to go back and tell them what you did. And that's always weird, because you're trying to shape what you did to what the dice say, as opposed to just saying, oh, I'm doing this. And then you have you know, a pretty good foundation to figure out what's going to happen based on what the dice said, because you already told him what you did. You just need to tell him the results now. You know, and how did that go, basically? I guess I kind of already said sort of what my just in be-all, end-all advice on this is, which is narrate in, narrate out. And dice themselves are your tarot cards. Mm -hmm. You can be someone like Brent Brown, who has seven dice in front of them, and they'll narrate each and every single die result. Like, oh, I got two successes on this die, so I did something cool, and I got two failure on this die, which canceled it out, so that something negative happened from it. Within each dice roll is almost its own scene, and you can get that in-depth. It takes forever to get through a round of combat, but you can go that in-depth. Yeah. The place to do that sort of in-depthness is more in social scenes, more where this is the single role to do something. If you're doing a knowledge check, this is the perfect place to do it. If you're doing a streetwise check, the perfect place to do it. Why? Because you're probably making one of these checks to do whatever you're doing. And then you get this entire scene within. It can work out. It's all in how much work that you're wanting to do. Right. For me, my true final piece of advice is, in social encounters, try and come up with, like, the desire and fear for any of your NPCs. A goal for them. Like, what do I want the out of the players for this? In some cases, it can be something as simple as, I want to get... 1400 credits for this bantha could be something simple but on the other hand the desire could be i'm wanting these 1400 credits so that i can then feed my family for the next week or so and my fear is that these guys are going to cut me down to uh, only being getting in a thousand that's not going to be enough mm -hmm. they don't have to be complex they don't have to be anything magical but having a few little things like that really allows for your NPCs to grow. It allows for easier spending of advantage and threat. Yeah, I mean, again, you don't have to think about it in the moment. It's already been thought about. Playing your improvisation. Because the general plot, you're going to know by the time that you sit down, you know the way that you're generally wanting the players to be going. Right. You've got an idea on what the NPCs are going to be doing on the main plot. 
figure out ways that it can go wrong and figure out ways that aren't the rails to get them back on it. A rail in a railroad is the no, you can't do that. The way that you hide them, the way that you make it so that people never notice that they actually are rails is coming up with like a side encounter for, okay, well, they failed to convince this guy. Now they've got to find the next one. Mm-hmm. And the next one's going to be this much darker sort of person. It's like, this is not someone that you're going to be spending any amount of time with. And because of that, they've gotten a new encounter. They're put on the right direction in the grand plot scheme, but it's hidden. You aren't saying, oh, well, no, you can't do that. It's, sure, you can do that. But the thing you're not saying is, but that might not get you what you think you want. Exactly. (laughs) The loud banging echoing from Ben's interrogation of our guests is getting a little disturbing. Just how hard do you have to hit someone to make a ringing sound like that? Fearing the worst, I open the door. Waving to David as I lean back in my chair, the hydro spanner attached hitting the vent as I do. Toydarian sitting at the table, holding his hand close to his tiny chest, an idiot's array laying before me. Well, assuming this guy can get us to this spiced wolf, they should be good for the coils. We'll have to find out if they can in the next tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way, and I'm at Deuterium Ice. I'm at AKA Agent Shades, and we're at thehydeanway.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about in the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way. Our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at talesatthehydeanway.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash thehydeanway. Okay, so what are you imagining from this? Because the way that I've started to realize in describing how I do roles, just in general, I've started to realize that our intro and outro is a die roll. Mm -hmm. Our intro is leading up to the die roll. Our outro is us deciding what the die roll is. And sometimes it's just bizarre. Basically, yeah. And we're recording that, so that goes at the end of the show. (laughs) 